<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you, and the election coming up. Well, you know, I, I think pretty much everybody's in waiting mode. We'll see what happens on Sunday when Bernie and Joe Biden have their sit down together without an audience. And what's going to be particularly fascinating about that is I think this is probably going to be Bernie's last chance to really push through, to break through. There are some people out there saying, oh, he's already beyond the number of votes, you know. Looking at that math, I don't see it that way. I think he still has a good chance, or at least a chance. And if he does really well in that debate, and a lot of people watch that debate, and it's, it's funny, I, I look on the, you know, there's some message boards that, that lean toward Joe, and there are some that lean toward Bernie. And the ones that lean toward Joe are saying, oh, yeah, I don't want to watch the debate. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to watch, are you? And the ones that are leaning toward Bernie are like, everything depends on this. Well, to a certain extent, it probably does. So, so there's that. I mentioned that. I also want to talk about the economics of all this. You know, what happens economically? I wrote a book about this back in 2000, I don't know, eight, nine, something like that. It was around that time, and, and it was called The Crash of 2016. Now, I had suggested to the publisher it should be called The Great Crash or Why Crashes Happen, but they thought it would sell more books if it said The Crash of 2016, because I think it came out in 2012, as I recall. And it did sell pretty well, but it's out of print now because 2016 is long behind us. But in that book, I laid out what would happen to the American economy if there was a black swan event. It was one of the, the three principal scenarios that I laid out in the, in the end of the book as things that could precipitate the great crash. And I believe that that's what we're seeing right now, right in front of us. And that it's this, it's this virus and it is interrupting supply chains. You've got car manufacturers in the United States that are having to shut down parts of their assembly lines because they can't get parts from China. You've got pharmaceutical supply chains. I got an email from a pharmacy, an online pharmacy in Canada that, I, geez, it's been years since I used them, but that I have used in the past. And, and I'm, so I'm still on their email list and they're talking about how, you know, so far they still have stock of all drugs, but this may not last more than a few more months. And so you might want to stock up. Now, there's a pharmacy saying this. And like I said, I used to do business with this company. They're very reputable. 
And I think that they're just, they're telling it like it is. I don't think that they're trying to goose a little extra sales right at the moment. Although one never knows, I suppose. But, but I've heard the same thing from my physician and from, uh, and from an acquaintance who owns a pharmacy down south. And so you see those supply chains being interrupted. So, I mean, typically there's two, there's really kind of three pieces to an economy. The third piece we'll deal with first, and that's government spending. Government spending in our economy represents between 20 and 30% of our economy. It's, it's, uh, I don't have the exact numbers here. I'm doing this off the top of my head, but it's, you know, it's a, between three and four trillion dollars a year in our economy is around 20, 21 trillion dollars a year, whatever that math works out to. That's government spending. And that, co- that covers everything. That's police and fire and army and, and infrastructure and roads and schools and all the stuff that government does. Government spending can resuscitate an economy that is having problems because it injects money into the, into the overall system. Or if government spending is pulled back significantly, it can actually cause recessions or even depressions. There was a deep recession during the Reagan administration, and I think it was because they were trying to cut back on government spending because it takes money out of the system. Right? And I'm not talking about the Fed you know, with stimulative monetary policy you know, with interest rates and things. What I'm talking about here is government spending or not spending. So you got that. But you can set that aside for the moment. I mean, it would bring it into the conversation. But the two main things in the private sector, because the majority of the economy, at least 70%, or more or less 70% of the economy in the United States, is the private sector. And even in, quote, socialist countries, or democratic socialist countries like Finland or Denmark or Norway, 60% of the economy is the private sector. The private sector operates on two different things. One is supply and the other is demand. You have to have them both. You have to have people who have enough money or enough disposable income that they can actually buy things, you know, so you've got demand. But at the same time, you've got to have people, you've got to have products available in stores for them to buy. So you've got to have supply. Now, the way that you increase demand typically is by increasing wages. Increase the, you increase the minimum wage, you increase demand. That stimulates the economy directly and rapidly. You can cut taxes, and if you cut taxes on the bottom, bottom 70% of Americans who pretty much spend everything they make, then that increases their spending, and uh, so that stimulates the economy. Reagan came along and said, oh no, you don't have to worry about demand. We can forget about that. We can just flatten wages for the next 40 years, which is what he did. You know, wages have not gone up since the 1980s. Uh, We can just flatten wages because demand doesn't matter anymore. It's all about supply. And if there's more cool stuff in the stores, people will go into debt to buy it. You know, they don't have to have a higher paycheck. And in a way, he was right. People did go into debt to buy it. And so, you know, we've got, uh, 20, I think it was $27 trillion in credit card debt in the United States, something like that. It's a mind-boggling amount of credit card debt. And, and uh, you know, a trillion and a half dollars in, in consumer debt. And then, you know, another, um, I don't recall the number, it's, I believe it's less than $10 trillion in auto loans. And then, of course, you got, you know, mortgages out there. So there's all this debt that people have gone into in order to maintain that lifestyle that they haven't been able to maintain. But the bottom line here is this is how an economy works. People get money, they go out and buy things, that's the demand side of the economy. Those things are in the stores so people can buy them and they can exchange money, and that's the supply side of the economy. You have to have both. 
Well, what's happening with this virus is it's whacking both sides of that. It is reducing supply. Now, there was an article in, in one of the business papers this morning, I think it was the Financial Times, about how Apple is starting to have supply problems and you're going to start seeing shortages of Apple products and a number of other computer companies and things like that. So people are going to be keeping them longer. They're, you know, they're not going to have supply. Well, not having enough supply is going to depress the economy. Similarly, the demand side. If people are, are worried about going to the restaurant because Trump won't allow us to have World Health Organization trust test kits, instead we've got to have expensive ones from big companies that donate to Republican politicians, presumably, and those companies haven't gotten around to making them yet, so people are afraid to go out, then they're not going to be spending money. They're not going to be going into stores buying things or restaurants or whatever it may be. And so demand gets hurt. People save that money instead. This is a double whammy to an economy. And I, in my lifetime, I've not seen such a double whammy. So if both supply and demand, let's say that they both drop by, you know, a trillion dollars, a $2 trillion hit to our GDP. If you want to make that up with government spending, you'd have to probably spend $3 trillion to make that up. And that's not going to happen, not in the current environment. So I think we need to really hunker down. I noticed yesterday that the Oregon, the bonds in Oregon actually took a hit in the markets yesterday, which means that investors are starting to worry that cities and states might actually default. People at the high level of investment are taking this very seriously. This is the Tom Hartman Program. They are looking at situations where if cities, particularly smaller towns, but cities or states are completely overwhelmed, they may not be able to make their bond payments. That's Great Depression stuff. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016, one of my favorites. In her writings, which if, this is from page 62, by the way, the, a middle class primer or primer is the chapter title. In her writings, which have become foundational for libertarian theology, author Ayn Rand suggested that the only purpose of government should be to prevent oppression by force. What she neglected to consider was all the force inherent in nature. If you're hungry, there is the force of biology. If you're homeless, you confront the force of winds, storms, ice, and rain. If you're sick, you confront the ravages and force of disease. These were the forces that provoked the first governments, the first communities, the first clans and tribes, the first nation states. It's easy for libertarian elitists, such as multimillionaire TV talking heads or college kids reading Atlas Shrugged, to talk about how there should be no government beyond police, the army, and the courts. They all have enough resources that they don't need to deal with the forces of raw nature. And that explains why billionaires would bankroll libertarian-leaning think tanks that will, when the crash comes with its full force, tell us it was caused by big government. However, in the real world, humans must confront both nature and other humans, which is why we create governments and why we create economies. But it wasn't until 1776, when Thomas Jefferson placed John Locke's right to life, liberty, and property, or replaced it, with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That the idea of a large class of working people have the ability to pursue happiness, the middle class. It wasn't until 1776 that that was even seriously considered as a cornerstone obligation to government. 
This is also the first time in history that the word happiness had ever appeared in any nation's formative documents, as Jefferson wrote in 1817 to Dr. John Manners. Quote, the evidence of this natural right, like that to our right of life, liberty, the use of our faculties, the pursuit of happiness is not left to the feeble and sophisticated investigations of reason, but is impressed on the sense of every man. As Jefferson realized, with no government interference by setting the rules of the game of business and fair taxation, there could be no broad middle class, maybe a sliver of small business and artisans, but the vast majority of us would be the working poor under the yoke of elites. The economic royalists know this, which gets to the root of why they set out to destroy government's involvement in the economy. After all, in a middle class economy, they may have to give up some of their power and some of the higher end of their wealth may even be redistributed, horrors of horrors, for schools, parks, libraries, and other things that support a healthy middle class society but are not needed by the rich who live in a parallel but separate world from the rest of us. As Jefferson laid out in his 1816 letter to Samuel Kirchhoff, a totally free market where corporations reign supreme, just like the oppressive governments of old, could transform America, quote, until the bulk of the society is reduced to be mere automatons of misery, to have no sensibilities left but for sinning and suffering. Then begins indeed the bella omnium in omnia, which some philosophers observing to be so general in this world have mistaken it for the natural instead of the abusive state of man. Although this may come as a sudden realization to many, we've really known it all our lives. In fact, in the 6,000-year history of the civilized world, a middle class emerging in any nation has been such a rarity as to be largely historically invisible. The United States has had two great periods of what we today call a middle class. The first was from the 1700s to the mid-1800s, and it was fueled by virtually free land for settlers, stolen from the Indians, and free labor, slavery in the South and indentured immigrants in the North. The result was, as de Tocqueville pointed out, the most well-educated, politically active, middle-class, non-aristocrats in the world. The second period didn't take hold until after World War II, during my dad's lifetime. Unlike the first, which was fueled by free land and slaves, the second had to be carefully constructed with specific and what some might define as socialist policies put in place during the New Deal, which asserted more democratic control over the economy and workplace in order to keep the economic royalists in check. To both stimulate and balance the domestic economy, FDR reinstituted progressive taxation, which gave workers more to spend and gave the rich an incentive to pay their workers better to maintain a stable workplace, since if they took the money themselves, it would just mostly go to taxes, thus stimulating demand for more goods and services. Progressive taxation has a long history. As Jefferson said in a 1785 letter to James Madison, quote, another means of silently lessening the inequality of property is to exempt from taxation all below a certain point and to tax the higher portions of property in geometrical progression as they rise. FDR eventually hiked the top income tax rate paid by the super rich in America to 90%. This had a twofold effect. First, it held income inequality in check and ushered in an era of equal income and growth among all classes. Unlike the Gilded Age, when the economy grew at a blistering pace, but the gains were afforded only to the robber barons, the period between 1947 and 1980 saw unparalleled equitable growth. During these 30-plus years, the poorest fifth in America saw a 116% increase in their incomes. The middle fifth, 111% increase. Top 5% only saw an 85% increase. All income classes shared in the equitable growth. The crash of 2016.
Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Welcome back. Skip in Seattle. Hey, Skip, what's on your mind today? Oh, well, you know, we're talking about big things, uh, the economy here and the deaths over there and so on. But one of the small things I've noticed is that the news reports now for commercial and public radio don't give you the Dow Jones number closing. It's a percentage. What does that mean? Hmm. Well, a percentage is always going to sound, you know, less severe. So day to day, we hear the percentage up and down, but for a week's going or two weeks going, we can't know unless we go to the library or go to the internet or something, look it up, what the actual closing numbers were. I think that's probably. Well, yeah, but the significance is probably not that it's that they're trying to do happy talk. The reason why the percentage is really consequential right now is because trading algorithms and people who trade in stocks, and I'm not one of them, so this is real secondhand knowledge, but I read the papers. When you're in a bull market, you know, a a defined bull market, which we've been in up until this last week, means that even when the market goes up and down, as it does from day to day, and even if you get a thousand point drop on a particular day, that market is just going to continue steadily going up, 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 up. When a bear market is called by the stock analysts, everybody's algorithms change, everybody's expectations change, and the behavior of traders changes. So the difference between a bull market and a bear market is 20%. When you're in a bull market going up and you hit a bump and that bump goes down 10%, that's called a correction. But everybody expects that the bull market is still in effect. It's going to continue going up. When it goes down 20%, which is what they hit this last week, when it goes down 20%, then it's officially a bear market. And once you are officially in bear market territory, and if the Dow closes a full 20 points down, then it's officially a bear market. That means that tomorrow and for the next probably few months, you're going to see in all probability the stock market start going steadily down, not necessarily quite as rapidly, but it'll just, all of the trading expectations are going to be going down. And the people who make a living on Wall Street on this, they make a living whether it goes up or now or down. It's the people who have, you know, 401ks and pension funds who, who make out when it goes up and get hurt when it goes down. But the guys on Wall Street, when, the, when you're in a bear market, they just start betting. They just decide, instead of deciding which stocks to, stocks to buy, they decide which stocks to bet against. And they make their money on those bets. They're called puts. And so the reason probably why there's been a lot of reporting around percentages over the last few days is everybody's been waiting to see if we're going to hit that 20% threshold. Just my guess, Skip, but I think that's what's going on. Skip, great to hear from you. Thank you for the call. Mark in Woodstock, New York, uh, listening on WIOF. I have a daughter who's an adult woman with severe autism. We've talked about this before. She lives Mm. in a group home. She's nonverbal, has totally no comprehension about coronavirus or anything dealing like that. People with developmental disabilities are, you know, they they have, so she lives in a group home with five other women with severe developmental disabilities. They've got staff coming in, different shifts and so forth like that. They go out to day programs. You know, they, they can't be under these rules about advisories about not putting something in your mouth because they have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the staff that comes in are also 
completely underpaid. They're working for chump change. They're working for twelve thirty an hour doing life and death work. And I'm wow. just talking to advocate for people with developmental disabilities who can't who can't speak for themselves in this crisis. Yeah. They have no idea what's going on, and there are, yeah. are a lot of people like that. And a lot of those people who are doing that work, and I suspect that we're going to find when the postmortem is done that this, this, uh, there's a similar situation among these three uh, elder care facilities in the Seattle area, where it appears that staff has been moving from facility to facility and spreading the coronavirus that way, that these are people who are not only poorly paid, but they have no sick days, they have no paid sick days, and in some cases they have no health care benefits. And if we were to have, if we were to join the rest of the civilized world and cease becoming the only, the only developed country in the world that doesn't mandate paid sick time off, and the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care system, if we were to join the rest of the world, it would improve the lot of your daughter and people in her situation as well as people in elder care situations, Mark. Well, fortunately, she's under Medicaid right now and she's getting good medical care, but as far as we've got people coming in and out of the house, they go to day program, they're, they're out in the community, they're touching things that you can't tell them, don't touch this, don't touch that. They don't know. You know, right. a lot of them, like my daughter, have pica, which means they put inedibles in their mouths. And Oh, right. Yeah. People who eat plastic and, you, and, and dirt and stuff. Yeah. It, which sometimes right. that's a sign of a nutritional deficiency, isn't it? Well, it's more of a... The way I understand it is part of her developmental disability. I you know, I mean, I could be. I've read about people that actually eat like dirt, and they, they, they're the ones who uh, have nutritional right. they're mineral problems. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, anyway, I was just trying to advocate for people who can't talk for themselves. Good, on you. Also thinking good on you, Mark. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you for the call. And yeah, good talking to you. Carl in Ocala, Florida. Hey, Carl, what's up? We talked a couple of weeks ago and had a really interesting conversation about strategic versus tactical kinds of planning. Mm -hmm. This whole mess, I wouldn't want anybody to picture me as an 82-year-old quivering at a corner in my house because I run a couple of miles each day and I still work out pretty good. Anyway, I talked to one of my many offspring, uh, Marines, active duty in Japan or near Japan and in near Kuska Islands. They didn't get kits from the Department of Defense, but they were provided by the Japanese government, as whatever they need. Uh, kind of amazing. Oh. We can't take care of our own, but I sit here. I'll be sure to tell Congressman Pokan about that. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Well, that's what yeah. he told me. So anyway, that's what two of them told me. The, the thing I was going to comment about was um, in the whole test kit thing. One of my titles in the first half of my life uh, was captain. I was a Marine. And my title of doctor is the last half of my life. I've been hearing mm -hmm. a lot of rumors that I can't chase down about a self-application test kit being developed. I, one of the questions I wanted to ask was, have you heard of anything like that? A do-it-yourself test kit? You mean like the yeah, uh, HIV uh, test kits you can get through Amazon? Yeah, with instructions to, to mail it in, I guess, to some lab. or some, It's, it's right. probably a moneymaker for some lab, but I don't know. You know, if Ron Klein, who was Obama's uh, czar yeah, for yeah. The, the whole Ebola yeah, thing, Ebola. if what he said last night on MSNBC was correct, that these two companies, 
Quest and LabCorp, I think the other one was, or something like that, that these two large for-profit companies are the only ones that Donald Trump and the Trump administration are allowing to be certified to provide test kits in America. And that's why we've we've gone three months without these low-cost World Health Organization certified test kits like they have in Japan, like they gave your son in Japan. If that's what's going on, and these are for-profit companies, and this is all about the free market, then it wouldn't surprise me if a few months down the road they start popping up on in online sources or in local pharmacies. Well, um, it's just we've, I mean, we've seen such be a good an thing. enormous failure in the strategic planning, which should have occurred some time ago. But, you know, this, yeah. this uh, how do I describe this 73-year-old, orange-haired, astoundingly ignorant buffoon that occupies the Oval Office currently, stands there and tells us anybody can get a kid. I called my local other doctors, I'm retired now, uh, and, and our county health department and a number of other agencies. They have no idea about kits. They suggest you could come in and try to show symptoms. If you can demonstrate symptoms, they might put you in the queue for kits and no guarantee that it'll be a day or two or three or a week or whatever to get a response. Wow. It's, it's that's uh, beyond belief. Have you heard, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, have you heard anything at all about a definitive answer, not a million by Wednesday or two million by this Friday or 100,000, which turned out to be 75, any definitive answers to actually how many kits have been approved and disseminated? No, I can't find I anything anywhere. The, I the, the closest I've gotten to that is between five and 7,000 nationwide so far through yeah, CDC, but I, I'm not even sure I trust that number because they're no longer publishing those numbers. Carl, I got to move along, but thank you. If, you, if you. if you get any information, give me a shout. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's on your mind? I just wanted to say the population has been trained by neoliberalism and this, you know, really excessive individualism, you know, to essentially just write off democracy and not be involved in politics. I mean, I know that you've encouraged and successfully encouraged people to be involved, but when they don't see anything come of it, you know, through either political party or just, you know, very, very little come of it. It just doesn't bode well for democracy as a whole. Populism is democracy. Let's, you know, why don't we just say that? The other, you know, kind of democracy where it is just a bought-off system where, you know, very, very wealthy interests are really the electorate and decide for us you know, it just doesn't work because, of course, it, it benefits only a few people. It doesn't benefit the entire population. So how we work out of that, I don't know. But in the issue of, say, health care, for instance, it's decades, decades that we've known that these democratic socialist systems like Denmark and other, you know, European systems, the other 33 or whatever countries that have a different system of health care, that that was far superior. But we couldn't, even Hillary Clinton, I think, wanted Medicare for all way back in the day. But it's not mm. political, politically tenable to... Jimmy uh, Carter campaigned and, on Medicare for all in 1980, John. Yes, yes. And, you know, it, I mean, it was so interesting. I remember when they called it the Manchester Guardian, picking up a copy and reading about how in even in Thatcher's 
Britain, which was like, you know, it was like a, pol- a political, more than just a political takeover. She went up to the north of the country and just wreaked havoc on those people. And, you know, she was going to privatize even the even the health care system, which they're still trying to do. You know, the conservatives mm-hmm. have been doing trying to do that for years there. But when it came sure. down to it, a country of, uh, at the time, 55 million people, Massachusetts, with its 5 million people population or 6 million or whatever it is, spent more on administrative costs than the entire system. So, you know, it's not rational. That's the problem, is that democracy, the whole idea of democracy is that we get true information and we can make that stick you know we don't Mm -hmm. there isn't alternatives truth there is truth and it's based on information and it's based on you know statistics and whatnot like the lancet you would think it would end the conversation they had come a a group of epidemiologists had come up with an a number 450 yale university yes and in the lancet i mean this is not oh a radical magazine. Oh, it's the most prestigious medical journal in the world. And they said Medicare for all would save 68,000 lives and save trillions of dollars here in the United States. And they were right. John, I'm sorry we're out of time, but, uh, you know, spot on. I'm with you. And, 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 you know, Reagan conditioned us to this. He started his, his inaugural address. He said government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the cause of your problems. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, it's true government can cause some problems, but the vast majority of things government does is solving problems. There's a reason for government. There's a reason we fought a revolution to have our own government. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is page 34. Prior to this, we've set up how conservatives saw the 60s as a time of great social chaos and the rise of Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson and uh, whole consumer and environmental movements as threats to profitability and business. And they had to do something about it. So page 34. Louis F. Powell Jr. was just sitting down to breakfast in his suite at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City when he received a call from the White House. The year was 1971, more than 40 years since the last great crash. The 60s had ended and the Vietnam War had destroyed the Democratic Party, leaving Richard Nixon as President of the United States. And Nixon needed a favor. A thin, ascetic man with wispy hair and fragile features, Louis Powell had ancestral roots in America's first European settlement, Jamestown, and a lifetime of participation in the law. He deeply loved his rich Richmond, Virginia home and the law practice he had there, which mostly consisted of defending corporate interests and wealthy Southern white men. He walked comfortably, often in crepe-soled shoes, dressed as a Southern gentleman, and spoke so softly that people sometimes leaned forward to listen. But when he spoke, his words were precise, well-measured, and carefully considered. He was one of the most brilliant jurists of his day, and so it's no surprise that the Nixon White House was considering him for a seat on the Supreme Court, a job he turned down at first. But then when Nixon called him again at the Waldorf Astoria, he reluctantly accepted. As a Supreme Court justice, Lewis Paul was very much the moderate, and his legacy on the high court would reflect his balanced and authentic interpretation of the rule of law in America. However, just a few months before he was nominated by Nixon, Powell had written a memo to his good friend Eugene Sindor Jr., the director of the United States Chamber of Commerce at the time, and Powell's most indelible mark on our nation was not to be his 15-year tenure as a Supreme Court justice, but instead that memo, which served as a declaration of war, a war by the economic royalists against both democracy and what they saw as an overgrown middle class. It would be a final war, a bella omnium contra omnis, 
against everything the New Deal and the Great Society had accomplished. It wasn't until September 1972, 10 months after the Senate confirmed Powell, that the public first found out about the Powell memo. The actual document had the word confidential stamped on it, a sign that Powell himself hoped it would never see daylight outside of the rarefied circles of his rich friends. By then, however, it had already found its way to the desks of CEOs all across the nation and was, with millions in corporate and billionaire money, already being turned into real actions, policies, and institutions. During its investigation into Powell as part of the nomination process, the FBI never found the memo, but investigative journalist Jack Anderson did, and he exposed it in a September 28, 1972 column titled, Powell's Lessons to Business Aired. Anderson wrote, shortly before his appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. urged business leaders in a confidential memo to use the courts as a social, economic, and political instrument. Pointing out that the memo wasn't discovered until after Powell was confirmed by the Senate, Anderson wrote, Senators never got a chance to ask Powell whether he might use his position on the Supreme Court to put his ideas into practice and to influence the court on behalf of business interests. This was an explosive charge being leveled at the nation's rookie Supreme Court justice, a man entrusted with interpreting our nation's laws with absolute impartiality. But Jack Anderson was no stranger to taking on American authority and no stranger to the consequences of his journalism. He'd exposed scandals from the Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, and later the Reagan administrations. He was a true investigative journalist. In his report on the memo, Anderson wrote, Powell recommended a militant political action program ranging from the courts to the campuses. Powell's memo was both a direct response to Roosevelt's battle cry decades earlier and a response to the tumult of the 1960s. He wrote, quote, no thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack, end quote. When Sindor and the Chamber received the Powell memo, corporations were growing tired of their second-class status in America. Even though the previous 40 years had been a time of great growth and strength for the American economy and America's middle-class workers, and a time of sure and steady increases in profits for corporations, CEOs felt something was missing. If they could only find a way to wiggle back into the people's minds, who were just beginning to forget the royalists' previous exploits in the 1920s that had crashed our economy, then they could get their tax cuts back. They could trash the burdensome regulations that were keeping the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food we eat safe. And the banksters among them could inflate another massive economic bubble to make themselves all mind-bogglingly rich. It could, if done right, be a return to the roaring 20s. But how could they do this? How could they convince Americans to take another shot at what was widely considered a dangerous free market ideology and economic framework and that Americans once knew preceded every great crash in war. But Lewis Powell had an answer, and he reached out to the Chamber of Commerce, the hub of corporate power in America, with a strategy. As Powell wrote, strength lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through unified action and national organizations. Thus, Powell said, the role of the National Chamber of Commerce is therefore vital. The crash of 2016. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. <laughs> 
Ross in Livingston, Montana. Hey, Ross, what's on your mind today? Well, great job, young man. You know, the way I see this, Tom, is we're on a big boat and we're going down a river and we're all watching Trump at the helm. And somebody says, hey, he's taking us over the falls. And somebody else says, yeah, he's taking us over the falls. So the next thing that we're going to hear is, hey, he took us over the falls. And what about Bloomberg or somebody that's got the money? What, can somebody step up and purchase tests, take that chance, get them distributed, get the things that we need and bypass? Here's the problem, with, uh, Russ. There are tests available all over the world and governments can buy them. They're manufactured by a company out of Germany, um, the World Health Organization approved test. And you know any state in the United States, in theory, could buy them and use them. The problem is, if they're not certified by the Food and Drug Administration for specifically for the coronavirus, you can't use that test, you can't use the results of that test to, to do anything that has to do with public health. You can't report the results of that test. You can't hospitalize somebody based on the results of that test. You can't do anything legally, uh, you know, quarantine somebody as a result of that test. You can't shut down a school as a result of that test. And the Trump administration has refused to certify these tests in the United States. So if Bloomberg was to go to that German company and buy a million of the test kits and, 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 and drop them over New York City from helicopters, it would not mean anything because they're not FDA approved and therefore they can't be used. Now, Trump just gave one and a half million dollars to two companies, Quest and uh, BioLabs or Lab, LabCorp. And he just gave them a million and a half bucks to help speed up the development of for-profit testing systems here in the United States. And, that, and, and these two companies announced, was in, I read it in the New York Times, I believe, that each one of them had, had successfully tested over a thousand people yesterday. You know, in one day. Wow. I'm impressed. Right. But that's what's going on, Russ, is, you know, Donald Trump and the Republicans are running this thing based on it's got to be done on the profit motive. You can't be one of these socialist things where you get the World Health Organization involved and use their tests. And and uh, we don't want to be send, sending money to a German company. Uh, so it's got to be an American solution made in America that will help keep America great. Don't you know? So that's what's going yep. on, Russ, and that's the answer to why you can't, why, why Michael Bloomberg couldn't buy the WHO te tests out of Germany and pass them out. And meanwhile, in South Korea, they're testing, they've tested several hundred thousand people. They're testing only 10,000 people a day. Iran is testing people. Italy is testing people. All over Europe, they're testing people. So no so hero, that's where we're at. Falls we go. Yep. Yeah, there you go. I'm with you. And that's why I'm doing this show from home. Russ, thanks a lot for the call and why every single one of you, if you can, should limit any kind of exposure you can. And if you do have to go out and you're handling doorknobs or even store doors and things like that, don't touch your face and wash your hands frequently. Derek in Warner Robins, Georgia. Hey, Derek, what's on your mind today? I've been a conservative for most of my life. Uh, I've listened to conservative media. Reagan was a great president, that kind of idea. Until I watched mm -hmm. uh, a documentary by Oliver Stone, The Untold History of the United States. And it really shocked me to see the different ways people approach history. And so mm -hmm. I have a, a lot of Facebook friends that are conservative. And mm -hmm. when discussing FDR and the New Deal, I've seen comments like the New Deal extended the Great Depression and things like that. And I'm trying <laughs> to investigate all of this as... I now kind of try to challenge the things that I've been mm -hmm. told and taught. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about 
the New Deal sure. and what it did economically sure. and how we can how we can as people who seek the truth uh, get to a place where we understand history in its proper context. Yeah. The, uh, you know, of course, the Great Depression happened and the, the Great Crash happened in 1929. Um, that then led to the beginnings of the Depression in 1930 as unemployment started to ripple across the country. That unemployment then as business activity went down and business activity was going down because, you know, people couldn't borrow money, um, uh, you know, and, and we're going to be seeing this here in a few months. Um, so you had a wave of corporate bankruptcies and thus people lost their jobs. They lost their jobs. They didn't have money to buy things. When people don't have money to buy things, then companies stop making them. When they stop making them, they lay off more people and it becomes a, a, spi a downward spiral. And by 1932, uh, well, actually by, by March of 1933, that was March 5th, 1933 was the day that Franklin Roosevelt was sworn into office, even though he was elected in November. In fact, they amended the Constitution to move the swearing-in date back to January 20th because um, the Depression got so bad in the first three months of 1933, the country needed FDR and they didn't have him. Instead, they had, um, you know, Edgar, uh, not Edgar Hoover, uh, President Hoover, Herbert Hoover. And, uh, and he was doing nothing. Uh, his, his solution was tax cuts and it didn't do anything. It made things worse. And so what FDR did was he came in and he said, the problem here is that companies are not making things because nobody has any money to buy things. So what we need to do is inject money at the level of the individual person. We don't need to bail out industry. The way that you get industry going again is you give money to people. And John Maynard Keynes had written a book about this, and he, made, and he was FDR's advisor. And he even, Keynes even said, if you hire one guy to dig a hole, and you hire the second guy to fill the hole, and you pay them both, those guys will go into their community, and they'll start buying things from stores. And that will start circulating money in the, in the local community. And then companies will start hiring people to make things to sell in those stores. And you will bring the economy back. It's an artificial stimulus, but it reverses the downward spiral and starts an upward spiral. Viral. So instead of hiring people to dig holes and fill them, FDR created the, the Civilian Conservation Corps, which hired a million young men and sent them all across the country. We were having the Dust Bowl back then, which was largely the result of deforestation. And they planted tens of millions of trees, which stopped the Dust Bowl, this environmental disaster. He created the Works Progress Administration, which hired several million young men and, and some women, and built the, the Hoover Dam and built uh, and it created the Tennessee Valley Authority. And I mean, just, you know, put, put Americans back to work with federal money. It was borrowed money. This was all borrowed money. And by 1936, when, when, when FDR was running for re-election, uh, unemployment had gone from a... Th and, and by the way, the day that FDR, the, the week before FDR was sworn in, the last banks in America closed. Every single bank in America was closed, and everybody lost all of their money. My mother's family was fairly wealthy up in northern Michigan in Charlevoix. They owned a big house and all this kind of stuff. They lost everything. And my, my, my mom's dad had a heart attack and died when she was 13, you know, in the, in the Great Depression. So, you know, it was a terrible, terrible situation. Well, by 36, that 35% that unemployment rate was down to around 10 or 11%. It was still high, but it was, you know, the, we were on our way out of the Great Depression. In 37, though, in the election of 36, the Republicans were doing all this fear-mongering about the deficit that, that FDR was running up and that this was socialism. And by then, he had passed long-term unemployment insurance. He had passed Social Security. Um, he had passed, a, you know, a number 
number of things that would that would be shock absorbers for future uh, depressions or recessions. And uh, so anyhow, the Republicans are yelling and screaming. And so FDR and the Democratic Party were feeling all this pressure. And the newspapers also yelling and screaming that FDR was spending the country into bankruptcy and we were going to see hyperinflation, which was already happening in Germany, by the way, um, hyperinflation for completely different reasons. But everybody was hysterical about this. And so in 37, FDR dialed back these programs, dialed them back substantially, you know, cut back government spending by almost 30 percent. And as a result, we started to slide back into the Depression. That upward spiral stopped and a downward spiral began. By 38, he put us back, he, he restored those programs, and we started going forward again. And then, of course, in, in 41, I believe it was, uh, uh, was it December 5th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, that was the biggest government stimulus program in the history of the United States, was World War II. And the entire country was mobilized, again, all with borrowed money. And that was what finally completely got us out of what was referred to until the early 1950s as the Republican Great Depression. So that's a snapshot history, Derek. Did I, did I explain it well for you? Yes, thank you. Okay, good luck. Carry, carry the message forward. <laughs> there's some good books out there on it as well. In fact, there's no shortage of them. But, uh, you know, uh, what you want to learn about, if you want to really learn about how this happened, uh, you know, there's some great histories of the FDR presidency. The, the, you know, the, they're just straight up histories. And also you want to look into Keynesian economics, which is how the United States ran until 1981 when You're Reagan flipped us to, to the Tom side. Hartman program. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. 
Coming up on the science revolution this week, first, Trump is using the same logic on COVID-19 that he used for pesticides and pollution. And I'll explain why that's not a good thing. Nile Marian, Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator with Friends of the Earth International, is here. Can we stop mass extinctions? Eva Hamer, Legal Coordinator of Direct Action Everywhere, drops by on her article, Why I Went Topless at Costco. Plus, geeky science. This is what happens when public transit is free. But wait, there's more. Tune in to The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tim in Los Angeles. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? Uh, I just had an epiphany yesterday. Uh, I started bowing to everybody instead of shaking their hands as Mm -hmm. the Asians do. And uh, I think that might be a really good practice. Oh, I agree. And and I'll bet anything, if you could get in a time machine and go back a thousand or three thousand or five thousand years, you would discover that there was a time in Asia where there was some sort of an epidemic that was transmitted person to person like this is. And that was when people began bowing to each other. And probably in India as well, because in India they also bow. And, and they also burn bodies, you know, when people die, which is a very hyper-sanitary thing to do. So, yeah, I, I think you're right, Tim. And, and in fact, I forget what show I was watching this morning, but somebody on TV was like, hey, let's do an elbow bump. And the doctor that they were talking to said, no, don't do elbow bumps, because that puts you within that three-foot range where if the person breathes on you and they're sick, you've got it. Just bow. Just bow. So, Tim, you're on to something. Thanks a lot for the call. Diane in Flemington, New Jersey. Hey, Diane, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. I want to thank you for your ongoing efforts for most of your life to educate us. It has helped me immensely. I was just sitting here, and because of your education, I know about the Spanish flu a little more than I did, and I thought, okay, the Spanish flu happened when? 1919, and then when did the Depression, the Great Depression occur? Shortly thereafter. Any connection? Any connection? No. no, the the connection in in 1919, the United States still had a relatively stable economy. Uh, the Spanish flu obviously upset the economy, but the top tax rate was still uh, 91% left over from World oh. War One, oh. and uh, we were still operating under the policies basically of Woodrow Wilson, the Democrat. And in in the election of 1920, Warren Harding ran on a twin platform. One was uh, he had two slogans. One was a return to normalcy. And what he meant by that was take, you know, do away with the uh, war tax, the the 91 percent income tax. And when he became president in 1921, March of 1921, he actually did that. He actually reduced that top tax rate from 91 percent down to 25 percent, just like, you know, has been happening with Trump. And 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 then his second slogan was um, more business and government, less government and business. In other words, privatize and deregulate. And he did those things, too. And that kicked off what was referred to as the Roaring Twenties, where the stock market just exploded. Working people's income actually went down during the Roaring Twenties, but the income of very, very wealthy people went up substantially and uh, until 1929 when the market crashed. And it led right straight to the stock market crash. And, you know, I lay all this out in that book that I wrote way back when, which you can buy used copies of uh, online, The Crash of 2016. And so I don't think that the Spanish flu had anything to do with the Great Depression. The Depression then and this one now that I think is coming are both the products of Republican economic policies. The Spanish flu and this epidemic are the result of not really knowing how to respond to them. 
Will do. Thank you for the call, Dan. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is one of the very last chapters. It's titled Green Revolution. Just as America now faces an unsustainable thirst for energy, so too was Germany faced with a power crisis in the late 1990s. Growing demands for electricity collided with the reality that the country has no oil reserves and a strong bias among its people against building nuclear power plants in the wake of the nearby Chernobyl meltdown. Yet the government knew that the country needed the electricity, equivalent of at least one or two new nuclear power plants over the next decade. So how to generate that much electricity without nuclear power? In 1999, progressives in Germany passed the 100,000 Roofs Program which mandated the banks had to provide low-interest 10-year loans to homeowners sufficient for them to put solar panels on their roofs. They then passed the Renewable Energy Law and integrated the 100,000 Roofs program into it in 2004. The Renewable Energy Law, REL, mandated that for the next 10 years, the power company had to buy power back from those homeowners at a level substantially above the going rate so that the homeowner's income from the solar panels would equal their loan payments on the panels and would also represent the actual cost to the power company to generate that amount of power by building a new nuclear power plant. At the end of the 10 years, the power company gets to buy solar power at its regular rate, and it now has a new source of power without having to pay and maintain and eventually dismantle a nuclear reactor. In fact, while the reactor would have a 20 to 30 year lifespan, the solar panels typically last 50 years. For the homeowners, it was a no-brainer. They were getting low-interest loans from banks for the solar panels, and the power companies were paying for the power generated from those panels at a higher rate, uh, high enough to pay off the loans. It was like getting solar power panels for free. If anything, the government underestimated how rapidly Germans would embrace the program, and thus how quickly power would be produced by the program. By 2007, Germany accounted for about half the entire world's solar market. Just that one year, 2007 saw 1,300 megawatts, and a megawatt is a million watts, 1,300 megawatts of solar generating capacity brought online just across Germany. For comparison, consider the average generating capacity of each of the last five nuclear power plants brought online in the United States. That capacity is 1,100 megawatts. So Germany had 1,300 megawatts just in 2007 added. In 2008, Germany added 2,000 megawatts of solar power to their grid, like two nukes, and in 2009, homeowners and businesses put onto their roofs enough solar panels to glean an additional 2,500 megawatts. Although the goal for the first decade of this century was to generate around 3,000 megawatts, eliminating the need to build two new nuclear power plants, the simple no-risk program had instead added over 8,000 megawatts of power, roughly eight nuclear power plants. And because the generation sources were scattered across the country, there was no need to run new high-tension power lines from central generating stations, making it more efficient and less expensive. Meanwhile, as dozens of German companies got into the business of manufacturing and installing solar power systems, the cost dropped by more than half between 1997 and 2007 and continues to plummet. The Germans expect that by 2050, more than a quarter of all their electricity will come from solar. It's now just over 1%. Now, I wrote this book two and a half years ago. Germany this summer produced 100% of their electricity this way. That's how rapidly this has changed, just in the last three years. 
It's really remarkable. Adding to the roughly 12.5% of all German energy currently produced by renewable sources, mostly hydro, but also wind, biomass, and geothermal. The solar panel program has been so successful that the German government is now thinking that it's time to back off and leave this to the marketplace, which they've largely done. And it's not just leaving it to the marketplace. They had to reinvent their grid. There's to be a smart grid to handle all the added electricity that all these solar panels were producing. They have too much electricity now in Germany. Germany is now considering incentives to its world-famous domestic auto industry to manufacture flex-fuel plug-in hybrid automobiles that can get over 500 miles per gallon of strategic gasoline boosted by domestically produced rooftop solar with existing technology. Meanwhile, Denmark has invested billions in having more than half of its entire auto fleet using only electricity by 2030. And China is no slouch when it comes to renewable energy. Although the Chinese continue to bring another dirty coal-fired power plant online about once a week, they surpassed every other nation in the world in 2010 in direct investment in the production of solar and wind power. As the Los Angeles Times reported in March of 2010, U.S. clean energy investments hit $18 billion last year. A report from the Pew Charitable Trust said a little more than half the Chinese total of $34 billion. Five years ago, Chinese investments in clean energy totaled just $2.5 billion. The United States also slipped behind 10 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, in clean energy investments as a share of the national economy. The Pew report pointed to another factor constraining U.S. competitiveness, a lack of national mandates for renewable energy production or a surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions that would make fossil fuels more expensive. The ultimate power to the people is for homes to have their own solar roofs no longer needing power lines from distant power plants owned by big transnational corporations. The crash of 2016. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.